motivates the false teacher. You can't read Paul without getting into false teachers. They were always battling false teaching. As a matter of fact, it's why Colossians was written. Colossians was written to counter heresy. And so let's look now. We saw last time, real quickly, that believers in Jesus Christ have been delivered from empty religious ritual. If you've been delivered, say amen. amen. Let's try it again like you really mean it. Say amen. amen. If you've been delivered from religion and into a relationship, that's what it's all about. Now, uh, he said, therefore, don't let anybody condemn you for what you eat or drink, meaning pay no regard to anyone who sits in judgment on you as to legal observances about foods or for not celebrating religious, uh, religious festivals, which meant yearly feasts, or a new moon, which meant monthly ceremonies. All of this is religion, rituals. He goes on, uh, or Sabbaths, uh, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, which have all come to an end with the appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, why should these things be refused? Hang with me just a moment longer. Here's why they should be refused. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Talked last time about no longer chasing shadows. We are not to allow ourselves to be cheated by those who want to pressure us uh, into unbiblical practices like worship of angels or asceticism. Remember asceticism? Punishing the flesh in order to subdue the sinful nature, which doesn't work, and so on. All right? We are not to allow experiences. We saw this last time. We're not to allow experiences, no matter how convincing they are, to trump the Word of God. The Word judges experiences. Experiences don't judge the Word. Okay? Look what Paul said, even if you claim to have seen an angel, it doesn't matter if the message is anything other than salvation by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, let it be accursed. All right, Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and we pray that you'll speak to us and help us to be wise, discerning, sharp, and influential for Jesus. And we thank you for it in his mighty name. Will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, I receive your word. Speak to my heart. Grow me up. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you better perk up and listen. Devils are out there. And they really are. Uh, I tell you, I, don't, I, have never, I cannot remember a time like this time. I've been preaching, it's hard for me to believe, for 37 years. It's about to be 38 years. That's a long time. How many of you, I've been preaching longer than you've been alive. Don't, don't raise your hand. I don't even want to know now that I think about it. <laughs> but I tell you, I've seen a lot, but I've never seen a time quite like this one. Uh, deception is just pandemic. They talk about the swine flu being epidemic. Let me tell you, deception is pandemic. And if ever there was a time the church needs to be in the Word, trust me, dear church, it is now. If you're not in the Word, you are going more than likely to be deceived. You're going to fall into some kind of deception because it's banging on your mind every day. 
deception. So Paul wrote Colossians by the Spirit of God. Of course, the Spirit of God wrote it, used Paul. The Colossians was, was written to counter heresy, false teaching, deception. Now, you'll find Paul and Peter and Jude. I mean, how Jude rails against false teachers. You find all of them, John, all of them. In the, in the epistles, in the letters, in the, <clears throat> in the postcards from the edge, you, you find all of them addressing false teachers. They were everywhere, and it was a great danger to the church. Now let me ask you a million-dollar question. Has anything changed? I mean, if they faced deception in the first century, are we facing it in the 21st? Is it as dangerous as it was then? Come on, everybody. Got the no nods tonight. Either do this or do this. But don't do that. All right. He, he's, he was always, and the disciples, the apostles, were always writing to counter deception because it began immediately to attack the person of Christ, the meaning of Christ, the work of Christ, who he was, what he did, what he was all about. Jesus immediately came under attack. Now, what Paul's about to do is, is, is expose the character of false teachers. He's going to tell us what makes these people tick. What makes false teachers tick? What, what motivates them? What is the root cause of why they do what they do? Well, the apostle says that the problem with those that seek to marginalize Jesus Christ or add to his finished work is very simple. Look what he says in verse 18 of Colossians 2. He says, their sinful minds have made them proud. Now, if you'll remember in the Bible, we're told that pride was the very first sin. Pride is the first sin to invade God's newly created world. As a matter of fact, it invaded God's creation before he made the world because it first appeared in Satan when he was still an archangel. He was an archangel. As a matter of fact, Satan was a cherubim. And it says that one day he became overtaken by his own beauty. He became narcissistic. You know the story of Narcissist. Narcissus. Narcissus was, was enraptured by his own reflection in the pond. Couldn't tear his face away from his own face. His favorite song was, There is none like you. No one else can, you know, do for me what you can. Narcissistic. Narcissism is when you are completely enraptured by yourself. It's a very dangerous mental condition, but I, I'm not here to be psychological. I'm here to tell you that the first sin was pride. And Lucifer, because God had created him with such beauty, and he was a musician, we're told in Ezekiel that his body was comprised of, of pipes through which music played. Did you know that's in Ezekiel? So he was a musician and a worshiper of God. That's why the devil hates worship, because he can't do it anymore. He lost it. And only the redeemed really worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus told us that. But he was a worshiper deluxe. He was a cherubim, a cherub. And pride rose up in him. And he said to himself, I will ascend into heaven and I will be like the Most High. God took him and God hurled him to the earth. 
He became a disembodied spirit, serpentine in his shape and form. And when we meet him, his, his sin and fall have already taken place. He slithers up to Eve and tempts her as an already fallen, damned, judged creature. He hated the beauty of God's creation because he ruined what he had. I believe the reason Satan hates people to be saved is because he hates them to get what he lost. So he was a worshiper, but he was filled with pride. Pride was the first sin. The Bible says pride precedes a fall. If you don't watch pride, pride will take you down. I've noticed, you know that I like to watch forensic files and, and court TV, and I, you know that I'm a, I, I am a chaplain with the police department. And I, I, I am pretty fascinated with just watching the way that God works and the way that God brings judgment and the way that God is a God of justice. And you notice... It never fails. When you see these criminals on forensic files, court TV, these people who, get, who commit these horrific felonies, there, there is one thing, a, a, a common thread that runs through virtually every case. The, the killer, the murderer, the thief, the felon is always filled with pride. He always thinks, I'm above the law. I can't get caught. He thinks, I'm smarter than them, sharper than them, can get away with this because I'm brighter than them. And he's always very surprised when a bunch of dumb cops bring him down. I heard one cop say one time, he may have been smarter than me, but he wasn't smarter than all of us. Pride is an infection. Pride is when you overestimate yourself. Pride is when instead of humbling yourself and getting an honest estimate of yourself, you inflate yourself. You begin to think you're better than other people, above other people, more valuable than other people, smarter than other people. And I'm telling you, when that pride, when you begin to believe it, when you begin to fall for the lie that pride tells you, it's not long. It's only a matter of time before you stumble somehow, some way, someday. Floom! Down you go. Because you were so filled with pride, you weren't watching yourself. You weren't, you weren't playing by the rules. It's a dangerous state of mind. We always picture the devil trying to get us, you know, drink, smoke, or chew, or run with the boys that do. We never stop and think about how he has some bellows. You know what bellows are? Those bellows that you, you blow the, the, the air into the fireplace to get the fire raging. He has bellows, and he does this. You are so incredible. You are so amazing. Have you thought about it lately? Have you looked in the mirror lately? I mean, you're really better. And if we could see you spiritually, you're a big balloon. And he keeps inflating you and you can get away with it and you're above the law and you're above the rules and you're above all these things. But he knows when he gets you to a certain size of inflation and pride and arrogance, he's also got the needle. And here you are and pop, down you go. 
These false teachers, he said, are filled with pride. They're filled with intellectual arrogance and spiritual arrogance. They believe they're above the word. They believe they're smarter than God. And almost always they claim to have a new revelation. God has spoken to me. Oh, you're still into that Bible stuff? Into that conservative dogma? You're still into that? I've had a, I've had a new revelation, dude. Yeah, God has given me a new thing. Anytime I hear the word new attached to theology, I go the other way. Because when the Bible closed out, it closed out. That didn't mean God stopped moving. It just says after revelations, the canon's complete, it's over. Now, if you want truth, open up the Bible. It's here. It's right here. There's not going to be a new revelation. We talked last week about the Mormons, about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, all these cults. They all began with, I've got a new thing. But there was an arrogance. There was, a, there was pride. He said, their sinful minds have made them proud. One commentator wrote, there are many people who think if they cannot understand a preacher's sermon, he's deep. What did he say? I don't know. But that must mean he's deep. I don't know what he said, but he said it well. He's deep and he's learned and he's an intellectual theologian. If, you, if he gives these, you know, these uh, huge words, uh, you know, mon monosyllabic words, these eight-syllable words and uh, flowery and eloquent and all these long sentences. Well, I don't know what he said, but boy, he sure had charisma. He says if he uses sentences that have no meaning and words that they can't fathom, and he, if he makes speeches calling them sermons out of which they get nothing, then they assume, some people, he's got to be very learned because I didn't get it. And deep and profound. I'll tell you what, if I hear somebody and I can't tell you what they said when they're done, I don't listen again. Jesus talked plain. Hello, everybody. Could he have talked way over our head? Oh, my Lord. He made words. He made the brain and the mouth that says the words and thinks the words. Jesus could have gone way over our head, but what did he do? He condescended and talked simple language, simple parables that everybody can understand. But not these people. We consider, and there are certain people that consider, well, if it was so deep that I didn't understand it, then he's got to really have a word from God. And then if by and by he does say something that they can't understand, immediately they seize upon it as being the words of a sage and of a great man of God. No matter what he says, it's not content, it's how it's said. Now, if that's not screwball, says this commentator, I don't know what is. Smart, I can't understand it. Deep, I can't fathom what he's talking about. Learned and intellectual, I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> you ever heard somebody like that? I'm going to say it again. If I listen to somebody and when they're done, I can't tell you what they said, why should I listen again? Why should I listen again? You know, folks, we've got to get disenamored with charisma and start listening to content. Jesus had content, all right? So by arrogance and intellectual pride, men depart from the Word of God. 
to teach things God never commanded. This is the root of false teachers' motives. That's the root. I'm above the Word. I'm smarter than the Word. And there was a whole movement way back at the turn of the uh, uh, 19th century. Whole movement. It's called higher criticism. Higher criticism was hatched in Germany, came across the oceans, came here, got into our seminaries, and higher criticism basically had this attitude. The Bible is not there to pick me apart. I'm here to pick it apart. The Bible isn't here to tell me how to live. I'm here to decide which part of it is the Word of God and which part isn't. This intellectual arrogance got into colleges. It got into seminaries. It got into professors. It got into teachers. It got into those who are supposed to be churning out pastors and evangelists and preachers to feed flocks. It got into their teachers, their professors, who began to teach them. Gee, I think there were two Isaiahs. Uh, we think certain parts of the Word of God really are not the Word of God. We think really a lot of it is fairy tales and myths and legends and things just passed down through different cultures. And so these, they began to graduate pastors and preachers and evangelists who could not stand in their pulpits and say, Thus says the Lord, because they weren't sure. It had been ripped from them. There are seminaries, if you go to them, you are in danger of losing your faith. They will, they will rape your faith. They will strip you of your beliefs if you let them. Not all seminaries, but some. I heard of one recently. Somebody was asked to pray. A seminary. And somebody stood up and addressed God as she. Nobody said a word. Folks, there is such a dumbing down. There is such a departure in so many areas and levels of academia. As a matter of fact, if you want to know where some of the greatest rebellion of, uh, against God exists in our day, it is in the high ivory towers of academia. They resist God. They insist on the teaching of evolution when they don't have a leg to stand on. They reject creationism because if they teach creationism, they lose their job and lose their funding and lose their money and lose their professorial positions. There is such a high level of conspiracy amongst academics to keep God out of school, out of the students' minds, out of the textbooks, out of the culture. It is, it is revolting. Not all, but a lot. What happened to them? They are proud. The Bible says that. They're proud. It takes humility for a man to say, Lord, you know what? I humble myself before you. I humble my mind to your word. And this is going to be my guide for life. And I'm going to let this Word and the God of the Word guide me, speak to me, lead me. I humble myself before you, Lord. I'll tell you what, folks. This is why so many of our kids are lost as soon as they go to college. They get in there and their faith is ridiculed and mocked. If you could be in the teacher's lounges and listen to what they say, about students of faith, 
Listen to what they say about Christianity. Listen to what they say about God. It would curl your hair. It's pride. It's pride. It's intellectual pride. By arrogance and intellectual pride, men depart from the word of God to teach things that God never commanded. This is the root of the false teacher's motive. This is what drives him. But even more importantly, Paul says, guess what? Here's something else about them. They're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. They're not even connected to him. These people that are trying to get, bring you under a religious ritual, trying to tell you your Christianity is not sufficient, trying to make fun of your faith, they haven't even been connected to Christ. Paul's argument is, how can these Judaizers or these false visionaries pronounce any judgment at all, at all on the body of Christ or any of its members when their carnal minds have never had an inkling about the wonderful spiritual body of Christ and about its still more wonderful head, the Lord Jesus Christ? They've never met him. They don't even know. In other words, these folks are on the outside looking in. You need to this, you need to that. You ought not this, you ought not that. Your faith is not enough. It is not sufficient. They're on the outside looking in. The false teacher takes delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into things, look what it says, which he hasn't even seen. He's intruding into something he hasn't even seen. Babbling about stuff he knows nothing of. That's false teacher. The apostle then adds that the whole body of Christ does its divine growing by constantly receiving supply of vitality and by constantly being knit together as one developing unit. And how are we knit together in unity as one developing unit? One body. See, we got lots of members, a couple of hundred members here tonight. But you know what? In God's mind, we're one body. One. Fingers, toes, mouth, eyes, ears. We're one body. Okay? And what is that body connected to? Well, if there's no head, it's dead. The body is connected to the head and receives all of its vitality from the head. So he says, how does this knitting take place? Quote, Paul says, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. The nourishment comes from God. Right now, you're being nourished. Right now. Now, if I was just up here talking Jeffisms, you wouldn't be getting nourished. But if I'm teaching the Word of God, you're getting nourished. And you know what? The head is infusing vitality into you, and we are growing as one person as the energy and strength and nourishment flows from the head. He's saying these people have never even been attached to the head. From the head, Jesus Christ, the supply flows out to every part of the body and at the same time knits it together into one spiritual, divine, living, and growing organism. You are not a religious unit. You are a spiritual, living, breathing organism. That means you're alive. Now here comes these critical Judaizers. You need to observe new moons. You need to observe this. You need to fast when we do. You need to this and that and the other. And if you don't do what we say, you're not saved. These critical Judaizers had never once embraced the head. So therefore, they had never once been a part of the body that they were criticizing. So Paul says if they criticize you, judge you, try to cheat you of your reward, tell them where to get off. 
You know, there comes a time when people are judging you. There's no fruit to it. You just need to tell them where to get off. Well, Pastor Jeff, that's not very loving. It's the most loving thing you can do. Look what he says. Then we learn a wonderful fact of what the head Jesus Christ has done for us. What has the head done for us? You have died with Christ. And he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. Now, I want you to, let's park right here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park here. And I'm going to stay here for the remainder of this message. I want you to think what he said. You have died with Christ. And he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. Rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, the evil demonic forces of this world, he has set you free from. He set you free from them. All right, now let's go on. You have been entombed with him in the baptism in which you were also raised up to walk in newness of life, Paul says. You were entombed with Jesus, crucified with Jesus. You know the old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it makes me tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you? You were there. And you know what else? Your old man of sin was crucified with him. And you know what else? It's still there. Now, it takes a while for your brain to catch up with that truth. You ever had something happen that takes you a while to catch up with it in your head? It's going to take you a while to catch up with that. But I want you to remember something. Look now. He says, our old man of sin, the sin nature that got you in all your trouble, that sin nature, when Jesus took those nails in his hand and his feet, was nailed to that tree, your sin nature was nailed to it with him. Well, Pastor Jeff, how could that be? I'm 21 centuries later. God. Well, how can he do that? Well, how did he make you? Well, how can God make me be back there on that cross? Because he's God. And because he tells us it's true. And we're to reckon it so. We are to assume and believe and live like it's true. I mean, this, you got to chew on this. This is not milk. This is meat, T-bone, steak, medium well. No, well done. Chew on it. Listen closely to the Word of God. Knowing this, everybody say knowing. You got to have a knowing. Knowing this, that our old man of sin was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. It's crucified. What got you in your trouble, what got you, that sin nature that was drawn to drugs, drawn to alcohol, drawn to immorality, drawn to pride, drawn to all the things that engulfed your life when sin was destroying you, that sinful nature was crucified with Jesus. 
So that boy is dead. You say, well, Pastor, he doesn't feel dead. Well, that's why it says, reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Satan can only operate in the dark. Do you all know that? Satan really hopes you don't get this. The devil is really, if he can pray, he's praying, you don't get this. He capitalizes on our ignorance. He defeats us through our lack of understanding. He does his best to rob us blind over our lack of knowledge of what Jesus really did for us. It's about way more than just getting you to heaven. It's about setting you free in the here and now where you're no longer a slave to sin. So he comes jumping off. The old man comes jumping off the cross. Comes right up to you and says, Hey, you remember that drug? Remember those drugs you were into? Hey, psst, don't you think, don't you deserve a break today? You've, you're full of stress. You've had so many disappointing times. One time won't hurt you. Here comes the old man. You know what you need? Instead of going, you know, you're right. Or where do you think I can find some of that stuff? What you need to do is say, get back up on that cross. Get back up on that cross. What are you doing down here? Get back up there. What are you doing here? You're dead. Get back up there. This is why Paul said, knowing this, for he who has, de- who has died has been freed from sin. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. This is the Message Bible. This is the Message Bible. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer at sin's every beck and call. Yoo-hoo, let's go sin. I'm no longer at your beck and call. I've been set free. Now, it goes on. Because our old sinful self was crucified with Christ, we no longer respond to it as a dead slave no longer responds to his master's demands. Message Bible. We had a master. The master was sin. And that master killed us every day. Robbed us every day. Follow us along, along, around in our life every day like a pickpocket. And he robbed us every day. That master called sin. The things you thought, the things you said, things you did. The attitudes you harbored. That pickpocket of sin <clears throat> robbed you by the day. Because you were at his beck and call. And there was no way you could ever resist him. You had no power. You were slave to him. He's telling us right here, no more. You have been crucified, that old sinful nature, crucified with Christ, so that when the master comes calling for you to sin, you can say, I am crucified with Christ. My sin nature is crucified with Christ. I might as well be dead to your voice. As a matter of fact, I am dead to your voice. We no longer respond to it as a dead slave no longer responds to his master's demands. A dead slave can't hear his former master nor respond to him. The master may demand, yell, argue, and debate all day long, but to no avail. The former slave is dead to him. 
And the Bible expects you and me as believers to wield that truth when the enemy comes knocking to lure you into something you used to do. He, he, he expects us to, knowing this, so that we can say, my sin nature is crucified. I don't have to obey it anymore. I'm not in your chains. I'm not in your chain gang. So this is why Paul says, so why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, taste, touch, and so on and so forth? You're dead to these old rules and laws that cannot save you. You're no longer chasing the shadows. That which was casting the shadow has now fully arrived, the once-for-all sacrifice of God's Lamb. So Paul closes out chapter 2 with these words. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. They provide help in conquering, or, or no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Rules and regulations don't kill your evil desires. Asceticism, beating yourself up, punishing your flesh, won't kill your evil desires. It's not by religion, religious ritual, rules and regulations. We defeat the flesh and have victory over sin. You can fast three times a week. Wear a burlap sack all week long. You're still going to deal with evil desires. How are evil desires within defeated? We'll close with this. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, you're going to die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you are habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by that sinful nature, you shall really and genuinely live forever. The only way you're going to have victory over sin is to quench it by the power of the Spirit of God living within you. That's why I tell you like a broken record, stay in the Word, stay in prayer, stay in fellowship, feed your inner man. Don't let your inner man starve to death. Feed your inner man. Listen to his cries. When your inner man, it, you're feeling restless. You're feeling angst. You're feeling nervous. You're feeling jittery. You're feeling out of sorts. Sometimes your inner man can be talking to you saying, feed me. Get into the word. Get into prayer. Keep me strong. Because as you keep the inner man strong, he's going to rule. And the evil deeds of the body will be quenched. And that's what Jesus died to give us. Can we stand together? Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Can we just say, Lord, thank you for crucifying that evil nature, that part of me that was sinful, that led me into sin, Thank you that the old man is crucified. Lord, help me to walk in that newness of life and stand on the victory Jesus bought for me. And Lord, I pray over this church body. I want to speak a blessing on you right now. Father, I pray for this people. Lord, in an ever-darkening world, I pray that 
Lord, this people will be a shining light. And Lord, you'll help us to keep our spirit man sharp, bright, keen, well-fed, so that we do not fall prey to the deceptions, temptations, and spiritual assaults of this world. Help us, Lord, to walk in that victory. And we thank you, Lord, for the incredible things you did for us on that cross.